0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My introduction will be very short because our uh, speaker uh, has to catch a plane in Los Angeles uh, before midnight and on her way to Washington, and in no way do I want to hinder that possibility. But this is the Martin E. Marty Lecture, a lectureship created by a family here in Santa Barbara uh, 10, 11 years ago, um, devoted to an annual commentary on the state of religion in the United States. So Martin E. Marty is is a prominent, still alive, prominent historian, University of Chicago, that happened to be a friend of the family that created the endowment. So, on to the presentation. Our speaker is extraordinarily qualified to speak to the issue of Muslim faith, Muslim people in the United States at this particular moment in our nation. Adina Lekovic has worked with the Muslim Public Affairs Council in Los Angeles for 15 years advocating for better media stories and public policies related to Islam and American Muslims. She has appeared on leading media outlets including CNN, Fox News, Huffington Post, NPR, and BuzzFeed. In 2015, she was named as one of Los Angeles' 10 Most Inspiring Women Game Changers by the Los Angeles Magazine. Georgetown University and the Royal Islamic Strategic Studies Center names her as one of the 500 most influential Muslims in the world. So with us tonight, she will speak to the topic of, and it's a very nicely worded topic, a canary in the coal mine, Muslims in Trump's America. Please welcome Edina Lekovic.
1: Good evening. I am thrilled to be here. Um, Santa Barbara is one of my favorite communities in California. Um, the small town plus inclusive nature plus the warm-hearted people that I meet here every single time um, make me want to leave LA a little bit so um, so bravo because that's not an easy task. Um, I am thrilled to be here although not thrilled to, show, um, show, uh, to be talking about this topic. Um, when I was asked to give this lecture it was uh, before the election took place. And at that time, we came up with this, t- with this title because it was, per- it was true then, and it's just more true um, as the days go on. So I um, am going to try to get through as much material in the time I have available and, um, and to leave time for questions at the end, because I would love to hear what is on your mind and what you're experiencing and hear your questions. Before I dive into why um, American Muslims are the canary in our national coal mine, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. With a name like Adina Lekovic, you might guess that my parents are from Eastern Europe, and that's true. My parents came from what was then then Yugoslavia, now the former Yugoslavia, and they left Yugoslavia in 1970, right after they were married, because they wanted a better life. They grew up in rural communities, farming families, and they didn't make it past middle school, because they had to help their families make a living and take care of their younger siblings. So they didn't have an opportunity for education. And my family's been Muslim for generations. Islam came, through, came to our part of the world through the Ottoman Empire. But for my parents, while faith was deep in their family and deep in their hearts, they had very little to no knowledge about what Islam actually taught, beyond some very basic, you know, basic knowledge. And so when they left Yugoslavia in 1970, they moved first to Austria, where they lived for eight years. And they had every intention of building their new permanent life in Austria over those eight years, in addition to working some back-breaking jobs, they also had my sister and I. And they realized in that time that they were never going to be fully Austrian. That within the national character of Austria, particularly at that time, and you know, there's some of that still there, um, that to be anything but a native Austrian was to be a foreigner, to be an other. And that even if you could attain citizenship, you would never be able to attain the Austrian identity. And so my parents, again, with a middle school education between them, and now eight years later, one child and one suitcase each, reinvented their lives for the second time and moved to the United States because they saw that in the United States they could achieve the educational dream that they had for their young children, and because they also saw that they could become American, that that was available to them, and that they could also have religious freedom. Because, again, even though they didn't carry a deep, expansive faith, they had a deep faith in their hearts, and they wanted to be able to retain or have some amount of pride to be able to say that they were Muslim. It was a dangerous thing to say when they were living in Yugoslavia at that time. And so my spiritual journey to my own faith uh, is complicated because I grew up in a culturally practicing Muslim home. For those of you who are Christians out there, we were like keysters, Christmas and Easter cr- uh, Christians. We fasted during Ramadan or High Holidays. Jews, right? Like we fasted during Ramadan. Um, we I went to the mosque every now and then with my parents, but I and I but I didn't know other Muslims my age, and there was no youth group when I went to the mosque. And back in the 80s, um, there was the the sermon was still mostly given in Arabic with maybe a five minute summary in English. And so it was not an experience where I felt present, seen, and uplifted. That only changed for me when I went to college. I went to UCLA, and my first day on campus, lo and behold, I walked past a table that said Muslim Student Association. And I thought to myself, why are they doing that away from their families? Because for me, up until that point, while I was never ashamed to say my family was Muslim, I would say it just that way. My family is Muslim. And to me, Islam was a list of things I wasn't allowed to do. No dating, no drinking, no pork, you know, the, the, the list. Um, and because I didn't have the faith, the creed, the values as a counterpoint to that, I only saw Islam through a limited lens. And I start my story there, and start this presentation there, because it's for those reasons that I can I uh, can see and identify with my fellow Americans who have a limited exposure to Islam and see only the you know there's no good, there's mostly just bad and ugly um, and evil on top of that in certain parts of the world, and so it's no wonder then that um, that uh, Americans report a like 50 50 uh, chance of having a positive or negative perception of Islam and Muslims. Um, And so it's against that backdrop that it was my spiritual journey in college that caused me to decide, well, what is this thing that other people are trying to stay so close to that I'm trying to run away from? And that caused me to actually read the Quran for myself for the first time in college and to be Profoundly surprised that I found a message of gender equality, of human equality, of compassion, of mercy, and of social justice, and a faith that says you believe in God and you do good, much like uh, uh, in in other faiths where we we say that we love God and we love our neighbors, that these two go hand in hand, and I found that in in my Islam. And so while I was born Muslim, I I chose to be Muslim um, when I was 19 years old, and I also chose at that time to start covering my hair. Not because I believed that God told me so in the Quran, because the references in the Quran are... Um, uh, most people say that, God, that that it's a requirement as mandated in the Quran, but there is um, a minority opinion, and in my reading, um, there's more to it than that. But the idea of modesty for both men and women is something that is sacrosanct. And for me, the choice to start covering my hair was a choice about representing myself as a proud American Muslim and of knowing that... As a, you know, as a fair-skinned European girl um, that I could pass. It was very easy for me not to claim my Muslim identity. And so my choice to wear a hijab had just as much to do with my pride and my faith as it did with any deep theological understanding. And so I put all of that out there because my professional career was originally, as I was saying, I intended to be a broadcast journalist. But when I started to cover my hair in, in college, when I finished college and started um, interviewing for jobs, I was told I was not going to be able to work in front of the camera. and. Given the choice between my faith and my career, I chose my faith at that time and decided that I needed to walk away from that career. But lo and behold, another opportunity came along to work with an organization called the Muslim Public Affairs Council as the communications director. And so lo and behold, I began a career of working with media professionals to help tell more humanizing, three-dimensional stories about Islam and Muslims. It's an easy job, right? Um, so so that is, that's where I've spent my career for the past 15 years. Um, and as I was telling a group earlier, um, it is in this space that I have, um, I have dis- discovered and rediscovered my faith over and over again because my spiritual journey to my own faith became a mission to amplify and uplift Muslim voices and Muslim stories in our own words, not as a response to stereotypes and myths and i went from feeling that muslims were invisible as a child to feeling now post 9/11 that we're overly visible and uh, and and that it what we see is um what we see is like when you're standing at the carnival in front of that funny mirror right that you that you it is you reflected back to you but it is a distorted picture, an incomplete picture, and a horrifying picture often of, um, of you. And so this struggle for American Muslims today, and the reason that I believe that we are the canary in the coal mine, and there are others, but that we are one of the canaries in the coal mine, is because for too long, government, media, Hollywood, you name it, have talked about Muslims, but not talked to Muslims let alone letting Muslims speak for themselves and tell their own stories. And this came to light just, uh, and I'm going to talk about this further in a moment, but with the executive order, with the travel ban, a group called Media Matters did a study of um, media coverage on cable news for the first week after the executive order came out. And of the nearly 200 guests that that were invited on or that appeared on those networks over that period of time, some of them repeatedly, Less than 15 of them were Muslims. Nearly 200 overall. Less than 15 of them Muslims themselves, whether they're directly or indirectly impacted. And that's just one example of the kind of the current plight that we are in. The struggle to tell our own stories on our own terms, so that America knows us for who we are. You heard uh, in my bio that um, that I do a lot of media, and it's not something I'm particularly excited or proud about because frankly the only times you're going to see me on CNN or MSNBC or any of these other places um, is when there's bad news. I'm a bad news girl. Either the day of or the day after or the days after something goes wrong. That's when I get invited on to condemn it, explain it, and maybe have 30 seconds to share a piece of who I am in the process. And that, I think, is reflective of the overall struggle that we're in as a community, is how we can take our rightful place, owning our own stories and sharing our own stories. So it's with that that I come to this place of talking about Muslims as a canary in the coal mine of the United States. So, or not. All right, so to put it against a backdrop quickly, when you look at world populations, Muslims are about one-fourth of the world's population, 23%, uh, with Christians being about one-third. When we look at where Muslims are in the world, we have the hugest population in the Asia-Pacific region. You've probably heard there's 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, where about two-thirds of them come from the Asia-Pacific region pushes back against that idea of all Muslims are Arab and all all Arabs are Muslim. Neither one of those statements are actually true. You're just as likely to meet an Arab Christian in the United States as you are to meet an Arab Muslim. And, And they also call God Allah, which is just the Arabic word for the one God. So when we look at the various populations, as we even look at European Muslim population, it's nearly 45 million. Muslims that live in Europe, and these statistics are four or five years old now, so that's changing when we think about immigration patterns. But then let's look at at North America, where we have about three and a half million American Muslims. Can you guess what percentage of the American population that is? One percent. We're roughly on par with the American Jewish community, Um, and while we are just one percent of the population, there are Muslims in all 50 states. There are mosques in all 50 states, and the oldest surviving mosque in the United States is in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And one of the first mosques that was built in the US was in one of the Dakotas, I can't remember which one. Um, But our community is small, but spread out, and has grown in prominence and in organization since 9-11. We have risen to the challenge. And so, you know, so you could see, yeah, there's, there's more information here. But so when I think about my community, this is what I think of. This is the day that President Obama visited an, American mo- visited an American mosque for the first time in his presidency. It took until year seven, but I'm still grateful that he did it because what this showed American Muslims is not just that we are supported from afar, but that we are supported up close. And this was a moment where, again, people got to show who they are on their own terms. So this is the American Muslim, the average American Muslim community that I know. Now, they don't walk around waving flags every single day. No no confusion there. But um, but this is what I know. But unfortunately, when we think about the most common images that we are shown about American Muslims, this is more often the picture. And this is a picture I pulled from, I think it was, I don't know if it was CNN or if, uh, it was one of the media that I had to do the next day that this was the image that was shown. And then they said, and now we have on Adina Lekevich, right? So I am there in contrast to this, which represents, so when we think about Muslim acts of terrorism, they represent, point the, of Muslim, of, compared to the Muslim population globally, it's point zero 0003. I've memorized that there are four zeros that, of the overall population. And yet, unfortunately, the mainstream average American Muslim or average Muslim in the world is often um, asked, well, are you a moderate? So you're a moderate Muslim. As if we have to come up with a label that is different than to differentiate ourselves from this. But the truth is that this and ISIS are to Islam what the KKK is to Christianity. A wicked evil distortion and manipulation of beautiful religious concepts and morality twisted for evil purposes. So this is what we're often up, up against. Now, again, so the San Bernardino attack happened a year and a half, a year and some change. So December of 2015, if I'm remembering correctly. Fast forward to the election season and the backdrop of terrorism and of buzzwords like domestic radicalization um, and common words like Islamophobia or uh, sleeper cells or these other kinds of boogeyman language that have been out there, then we get to a presidential election in which we see some of the most heated and bigoted rhetoric that we have ever seen on the campaign trail at least in our lifetime, so I'm not going to say the most, the biggest, the, so other, I'll let others do that. Um, but what we've seen is really striking, and this was the moment that, you know, it's not that the moment that changed everything, but this was definitely a milestone moment, when after the Paris attack um, took place, that candidate Donald Trump said that Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. And you'll see that that took place in December of 2015. Now why is that significant? Well, when we think about political rhetoric, let's think about the difference between what George, President George W. Bush did after 9-11 when he visited a US mosque just a few weeks after 9-11 and in that mosque said, we are not at war with Islam, we're at war with terrorists, Islam is a peaceful religion. In the immediate three weeks after he made that statement, hate crimes against Muslims went down significantly. In the immediate three weeks after Donald Trump made this statement, hate crimes against Muslims went up significantly. And this isn't my data. It's from a study that was produced by the Center for the Study of Hate at Cal State San Bernardino. And so political rhetoric, those who chose not to take him seriously— or take him literally i 've heard that often as we, we made the mistake of taking him, or some people will say we took him uh, uh, literally but not seri- or, uh, literally or but not seriously well there 's a lot of real literal damage that comes out of statements like this during some of the campaign events as well we saw Incidents like this, Did anybody remember this incident? This was a Muslim woman from, I believe, Atlanta or the, the, I'm going to generalize and say the South so that I, uh, oh, there we go, South Carolina. Um, She attended a a Trump rally in this shirt, and you can't see the shirt, but it says, "Salam," I come in peace. And she's wearing a yellow star to evoke World War II in Nazi Germany, and it says Muslim on it. This woman just stood silently in in protest at the rally and was removed from that rally while getting verbally assaulted by other people who were at that rally. She went on to tell her story on CNN and other places, and this was a milestone moment during the election where a Muslim woman right in the center of this got to tell her own story. Another example is that of Khizr Khan. I still have a hard time. Khizr Khan. Um, you may remember him from the Democratic National Convention, when he so passionately talked about the Constitution and talked about the loss of his son, a, US, um, a member of the U.S. military. And what did he, he and his wife get as a result? Uh, verbally assaulted by Donald Trump, who um, insulted his wife for, she was just standing there, and you know, this is just like the oppression of Muslim women, and, um, and that kind of language. But Khizr Khan became the star of the DNC. Besides him and Michelle Obama, none of the other speeches during the convention really stuck or really went viral in the way that these two did. And so, this I would argue is another milestone. It's not necessarily a turning point, but it's a milestone that's out there when we think about um, the face of American Muslims today. Then the inauguration happened, and now we have the formulation of a cabinet. Within that cabinet, we have a who's who of anti-Muslim voices. We have folks like Steve Bannon, like Ben Carson, not, not General Mike Flynn anymore, but, uh, and uh, of course Steve Bannon, again, I already mentioned him, the, 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 the king of, of among them. Um, these people have an awful track record of making anti-Muslim statements, not just your average, run-of-the-mill anti-Muslim statements, but calling Islam a cancer, a political movement, not a religion, um, and, and looking favorably on having less Muslims and more surveillance towards Muslims. And this is part of what is so, uh, should call us to awareness and to action today, is that it is not just about President Trump. It is about the team that is around President Trump and who carry some of the most vitriolic, xenophobic um, sentiments that could easily now be translated into policy, and we're already seeing that take place. Um, I want to switch here to the day after the inauguration, when the Women's March took place. Now, the Women's March was organized by four American women. Um, uh, that were multiracial, multifaith, multi-faith. And two out of the three are in this picture, plus Gloria Steinem. I can't pass up an opportunity to show Gloria Steinem. Um, uh, this is Carmen, um, Carmen Perez, Linda Sarsour, and the third woman is T- uh, Tamika Mallory. And the fourth woman is Bob Bland. These women were the ones who organized the biggest protest in history. And one of these women is a Palestinian, Brooklynite, uh, Blinda Sarsour, who went onto the national stage in this way, standing up for other communities. What happened to her in the following days? She was subjected to a horrific Twitter assault, an online assault where she was called everything from an anti-Semite um, to, yeah, to a Hamas supporter to uh, you name it. Just the, the ugliest of ugly things that took place. And so it's an exciting moment to see a Muslim woman rise to the occasion in this way and lead with grace and courage. But we also get the message that you will be punished to a certain degree. That to, add, to be a Muslim in the United States today is to have a certain level of courage, and especially for our youth who are you know, here in California, a group called the Council on American Islamic Relations CARE did a study of uh, Muslim students in public K-12 uh, uh, schools uh, last year. And they found that half of those Muslim students, and I should say like 95% of Muslim students go to public schools. I mean, it's a, it, that, so that's where most are. But they found that half of those uh, students had experienced bullying, harassment, or discrimination in the last year. Of those half, one in five said that it came from a teacher or an administrator, and that's in California, right? Our bastion of California. So these issues hit home, and they hit the identities, especially of our young people, who feel the most vulnerable. And that's why it's critical that we pay attention to them. So, having a role model like Linda Sarsour on the national stage, or Rose Hamid, the woman uh, who was wearing the yellow star, or uh, uh, Khizer Khan is tremendously powerful because it says hopefully to our young people that your voice matters, your story matters, and it's critical that you share your story. Don't let others tell your story for you. Alright, so then we move from the cabinet to the executive order. The executive order gets signed on Holocaust Remembrance Day, right? Two things, that awful things that happened that day. First, the executive order against seven Muslim-majority countries from which not a single terrorist perpetrator has come um, in the last 20 years, according to the government's own information. Um, but then secondly, uh, this, the, the White House's statement on National Holocaust Remembrance Day didn't mention Jews. And this is critical and I think significant because we know from the data that if somebody is Islamophobic, they're eight times more likely to be anti Semitic. Or the other way around, I always forget this one. But regardless, there's a, you're eight times more likely to be one if you're the other. We know that people who have hate in their hearts don't narrow, narrow down their hate, but it often is, gets wider. And so it was impressive that after the executive order was signed, this is uh, is Senator Chuck Schumer who called this uh, executive order was mean-spirited. Now that sounds like seventh grade language, but for a member of Congress to call a presidential executive order something like this was turning a corner. We, uh, in the organized activist Muslim community, were not sure how America let alone our elected officials, were going to respond. We were expecting this executive order. He had promised us he was going to ban us. It was just a matter of how it was going to look. And this first stage, the monumental response that we've seen from Americans is extraordinary. From interfaith people gathering in front of mosques to stand in solidarity, and we've seen this all around the country, to tens of thousands of people rushing to airports to stand in solidarity and to call for these immigrants to be let in, I never expected a day in America where people would be rushing to airports to stand in solidarity with Muslims, let alone to be uh, holding hands um, to create a safe space for Muslims to pray in the airport. This is a new day. And in my house, we created a word to take into account this whole post-9-11 life we're leading on the front lines and that word is chrysertunity. It's the idea that in every crisis, there is an opportunity. And it comes from a Mandarin character, which apparently includes both, uh, both words within one character. And so that's our English translation, chrysertunity. But I think that the response of average Americans to this crisis is truly what's inspiring and what gives me hope today. Because when people will stand up for one another and say things like, my best friend is not my enemy, or you probably saw the image of the Jewish father and the Muslim father with their children on their shoulders. you know, And they're uh, standing together in solidarity for something that's bigger than both of them. That is what is critical. And seeing these kinds of large numbers, I think has also created a challenge for us within the Muslim community. Because to me, that so many Americans have come out to stand up for us and to recognize us and see us, it's a new day. It's a new day. And unfortunately, I mean, I don't, I don't wipe away the fact that, you know, this hate that we've, that we've seen spring up its ugly head, these same people have ignored some of that hate as the years have gone on. But if it's a wake-up moment, I'm grateful to God that it's a wake-up moment that is turning people out. Now, the challenge, too, for us as Muslims is to show up for others. And that's a message I take very seriously within my own community, because Muslims are just one of the canaries in the coal mine. And we are not just singing, we are crying out. We are crying out to, sh- to say that we are the test of our democracy. And if they come for us, you know they're going to come for others next. But we already know that they've gone after women's reproductive rights. They're already going after immigrants and undocumented immigrants particularly. There's already an assault on LGBTQ communities. The- all of these things are happening. And so our freedoms are mutually intertwined. And that requires us to do what our faiths call us to do which is to work across faith lines, to dig deeper and wider so that we can create the kind of resistance that protects our constitution. It is about our constitution and our democracy. Um, It is less about the, the, the person or the persons in power. Our democracy is too important for us to give up on. And so this Muslim ban is just one piece of the overall puzzle, and it's great that our judicial system has sprung into action um, and is, being a, you know, is doing the checks and balances. It's wonderful, and yet we know that the next threat is just around the corner. You know, I've heard many people of great will say, um, if they make Muslims register, I will register as a Muslim. And I find that so reassuring and so inspiring, and it helps me to feel safe. And yet I know that it won't be that black and white. They won't say, if you're Muslim, come show up you know, here and register. Instead, it will be done by countries of origin. And the attack that we expect will also be some kind of witch hunt, The next thing that we're expecting to come down the pipeline is possibly either an executive order or a a bill from Congress that would designate a a group called the Muslim Brotherhood and another group called the Iranian Revolutionary National Guard, Um, these two groups designating them both as terrorist groups. Now, Muslim Brotherhood might be a lot of things, but it's not a terrorist group. And counterterrorism terrorism experts have, uh, have said as much, both domestically and internationally. They might be a version of political Islam, but they have not enacted terrorist attacks. So why, then, is the administration trying to do this? Because if they can designate Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist group, then there is then coming up a witch hunt after our organizations. Because if they can draw a connection between, oh, somebody in your group once lived in Egypt or in Libya or in one of these countries and may have had an interaction with somebody from that group, then there becomes this kind of witch hunt that criminalizes Muslim organizations, Muslim leaders, and, and those who support them. If you're connected to anybody, then you could be accused of material support for terrorism. And this is the kind of insidious attack that we expect. The erosion will not be as clear as we will make Muslims register. It will be to terrify the American public, using terrorism and the threat of terrorism, to be afraid of their Muslim neighbors. I hope I'm wrong, but that's what history has shown us and what this administration is already laying the ground for. Now, when we look to the north in Canada, this picture is a picture of the funeral for the six uh, Muslim men who were uh, killed by a Canadian terrorist while they were praying in their mosque. This is the turnout of Canadians, the thousands and thousands of people who came to pay their respects. Our own president didn't even send uh, any, you know, any any message to the Canadian people, um, but the, but did take the time, you know, took the time to comment against the terrorist attack near the Louvre, um, but made no mention of this terrorist attack, which uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau appropriately called a terrorist attack. I am concerned, and I'll, I'll wrap up, but I am concerned that we need to take our solidarity from being showing up for one another in public. To showing up for one another in our daily lives. It is critical that we show up for one another in public because our lives, our struggles, it's all, we're all in it together. We're a nation of immigrants, of the downtrodden, of the huddled masses, and the, of the freedom fighters and that's the inheritance that we have to embrace now because the same structures oppress us in different ways on different lines and in different places but through similar means whether it's through mass incarceration of black people, the decimation of indigenous peoples, the criminalization of Muslims taking place before our eyes, the stripping away of equality for LGBTQ brothers and sisters, or by stripping women of their rights to make choices about their own bodies. All of these things are intertwined and they require that we Push back because we're in a moment when President Trump may want to turn the country against itself by turning us against one another, by sowing fear, suspicion, and division, by criminalizing our communities and compelling us to fight for our narrow self interests. When we get focused on me as a Muslim, you as a Latino, you as an African American, you as a queer person, that's when they win. When, they, when we realize that we're all in it together and that our democracy is what holds us together in our constitution, then we become bigger. Another way that we expect to, the criminalization to take place is um, we just learned that uh, the president has directed the Department of Homeland Security to create a weekly report of immigrant crimes, just like the Nazis did about Jews in World War II. And I know it's easy to, you know, the, that's, that's the, the common thing that we go, but go to these days. But it is something that happened then. And it's something that also happened here domestically during World War II. When the San Francisco Chronicle and other papers started to publish the crimes of Japanese Americans. When you cherry pick incidents and you pile them up in a list, it makes it look like there's a pattern, a menace. And that's why these things are so dangerous. They're creating these kinds of lists. So now we have to defy expectations by speaking, standing, marching, and fighting for one another and for all of our rights, because, and by recognizing that a threat against any of us is a threat against all of us. And so I close by calling on you to do two things. One is if you don't know a Muslim firsthand, I urge you to meet a Muslim firsthand. 38% of Americans report that they know a Muslim firsthand. When I first heard this statistic, what I heard was 62% of Americans don't know a Muslim. And as I said a little earlier today, it took me a few weeks to get to the place where I realized, wait, 38% do know us. And what percentage of the population are we? 1%. So we're, not, we're doing something right And fellow Americans are doing something right, but that's what we have to build on. Because the single greatest predictor of somebody's perception of Islam and Muslims is whether they know a Muslim. And we know that that's true when you first meet somebody of a different sexual orientation, a different race, you know, different faith, that you go from the abstract to the personal. And that's the space that we need to get into. So that's why I call on you, yes, go out to the protests and rally. Yes, call your members of Congress. But do the work of direct relationship building. If you've never visited a mosque, maybe this is going to be your first time. If you have Muslims that you know in your workplace, start to have a more deep conversation rooted in curious questions, right? Curious questions. Um, And then secondly, um, I urge you politically to show up at the town halls of our elected officials. Um, This coming weekend, they're home on recess. Many of them will be having town halls. It is critical that they hear from us. And even those Democrats that are doing the right thing, we need to push them further and embolden them and let them know that we appreciate them. Our democracy is in our hands. If American Muslims are the canary in the coal mine, I know that America is listening, but it will take all of us to sing, not just for any one of our impacted communities to sing, so that we can reach a place where, when you think of American Muslims, these are the people that you think of. Comedians, artists, members of Congress, judges, athletes, a whole host of people who represent the real face of Islam. Not the moderate face, just the Muslim face. And so I thank you all for spending your time here with me this evening, especially in this weather. And uh, ooh, and I went a little longer than I expected, but we'll have uh, at least five, seven minutes for questions. And then I have to be in the car at 730 So I thank you very much, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, come on. It's okay, you're wasting time. (laughs) Thank you, I really appreciate it. And so, yeah, so hopefully we can squeeze in, like, three questions, and I'll try to keep my answers brief.
0: Do you consider the black Muslims to be Muslims?
1: Oh, good question. So when we say black Muslims, that can mean a couple of things. So first, I should mention that Islam actually came to the United States through the awful legacy of slavery. It's estimated that uh, 20 to 25% of those who were enslaved were Muslim by birth. So, uh, so black Muslims sort of start in that place. But more popularly, we know black Muslims as Nation of Islam. Um, and so Nation of Islam has a different set of beliefs than mainstream Islam. However, after the death of Elijah Muhammad, his son, Warif took Muhammad, took, uh, took uh, leadership of the community and he moved most of the congregants to mainstream Islam. And so today, when you meet an African-American Muslim, they are m- much—they are most likely to be an adherent of mainstream Islam, although the nation of Islam still exists uh, in much smaller numbers. Um, and African-American Muslims make up the single largest racial category of American Muslims. Um, almost one quarter of American Muslims are African-American. And talk about invisibility, their stories get erased all the time. Uh, luckily, yes, uh, yesterday, there was a Twitter campaign a hashtag campaign called Being Black and Muslim. If you're on Twitter, look up Being Black and Muslim um, because intertwined with Black History Month, um, they uh, and it was trending uh, nationally, I guess, yesterday. So there's other ways of trying to uplift these stories. Hello? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yes.
0: Yes. Uh, you know, I, I recall seeing... Uh, demonstrations and riots throughout the Islamic world in response to Danish cartoons. And yet when children are kidnapped and raped or other atrocities are committed, there's very little, uh, there's there's no rioting from the larger Muslim community. Hmm. Uh, So two questions. Don't you think that the terrorists interpret the silence as approval of their actions and don't you think that if the Muslim community were more vocal in speaking up against this kind of behavior, mm-hmm. that there would be less Islamophobia?
1: Thank you for your question. So first, with regard to the comparison between um, the Danish cartoon riots, I, too, was horrified by, um, by the level and the number of demonstrations against these cartoons of Prophet Muhammad, um, because... I too would rather see people um, uh, uh, rallying for democracy and rallying for the mainstream teachings of the Quran rather than um, them rallying in this way. but for those who did participate in that, what they saw was an attack on their faith and um, and uh, a deliberate insult. Uh, towards their faith. And so, unfortunately, they reacted in that way. But on the flip side, when we talk about people not speaking up when atrocious things happen in the name of Islam, that's where there is an invisibility. Because even, I'm going to go with a recent example, even recently in Pakistan and in India where there have been atrocious um, gang rapes of women, um, acid attacks, and other things that have taken place, there have been major Rallies and demonstrations, not just by women, although led by women, but also um, uh, men and women alongside one another. And those who are fighting back against un-Islamic practices like female genital mutilation or honor killings, or you know, you name it, these things that happen, are doing so in the name of Islam. And they are doing that on the ground in those countries. They are the ones who are, and you know, they are the ones who are fighting. They don't get as much press, certainly, but that kind of resistance is actively happening. And Muslims who are fighting back against or speaking out, at least against um, the oppression of Christians and others within their societies, are also doing that. Their stories don't get out as widely, and certainly there haven't been you know million Muslim marches against terrorism. But Muslims all around the world have condemned every single act of of terrorism committed in the name of Islam um, since before 9-11 but particularly since 9-11. There is not a lack of condemnation out there. There is sometimes a lack of reception and a lack of amplification. And that becomes, you know, that's where there's just not a fair fight between ISIS which sends out like 75,000 tweets a day and and its supporters according to the FBI's own information. Um, 1.6 billion Muslims around the world are not sitting at home fighting back against ISIS online. They're living their lives and practicing their faith um, and you know and and doing other things so it's not a fair fight and certainly it's an uphill battle um, but that's why we need to amplify the voices of mainstream Muslims so that they can fight back, oops, fight back against ISIS. ISIS has created um, assassination lists or hit lists and they include mainstream Muslim scholars and activists um, who might even be conservative but who've spoken out against them and Over 90% of ISIS's victims are other Muslims. So there's a lot of complexity to this, um, and I I could talk for a long time about that, but those are some of the initial things that I want to share with you with regard to your question. That was a great place to end. Thank you all very much, and I'm going to run to my car now.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.